Hello, I'm Jason Solomons. Seen any good films lately? Well, if you have or if you haven't, this is the podcast for you, summoning up the best new recommendations and bringing up memories of classic movie moments. I saw Star Wars for the very first time there in 1977 and I remember running home back down the street and banging on the door and going straight to the piano and try to pick out that tune and I've been trying ever since actually. (laughs) That's my guest on today's show, Alex Heffis, the BAFTA-nominated film composer who's worked with Kevin MacDonald, Justin Chadwick, Catherine Hardwick and Mira Nair, to name just a few, and who has now rearranged some of his most beautiful film themes for a solo piano album, called Sudden Light. It's a gorgeous album. And we'll find out how Alex Heffis put it together and what the tunes mean to him. And we'll get some of his musical movie moments. All after I tell you if I've seen any good films lately. There's only one place to start these days. What do we have here? Yes, he's back. Tom Cruise as Captain Pete Mitchell in Top Gun Maverick. And let's get it over with right at the top. This is a perfect dollop of summer big screen escapism. It's 80s high concept classic given a muted makeover for our beigier times. Cruise is in control, taking an experimental plane to Mach 10 right at the start, despite barked orders from Ed Harris not to. Ooh, he's a naughty boy. And this unpromoted hero, Pete, is then transferred back to Top Gun Academy to teach a bunch of recruits how to execute a very dangerous mission and manoeuvre into unspecified enemy territory. One of the recruits is Goose's kid. He's played by Miles Teller and Goose in the original was played by Anthony Edwards. And the kid still holds a grudge and reckons that Maverick is responsible for Goose's death back in the original film, if you can remember that. Can Maverick resist throwing the book in the bin? No. Can he ride his motorbike at supersonic speed in his leather jacket? Yes. Will he resist showing off and teaching these newbies a dangerous thing or two? Will he pull a stunt? Will he orchestrate a game of torso-bearing beach football to be played in silhouette as the sun sets and the sea moves in? And say, there's your team, sir. With just the requisite amount of arrogant pause for effect before the sir check. Check and check. That's a thumbs up for taxi. Oh, it zings with all the cheesy stuff you need. Sometimes it's cheesier than a raclette restaurant in an alpine ski joint. And Cruz's teeth grin so bright you'll need aviator shades in all shapes. They do square frames now. Didn't know that. And there's music by Harold Fultemeyer, Lady Gaga and Hans Zimmer. All bases covered. There's no Kelly McGillis. And nobody says anything about that. There is Jennifer Connolly, who I think is supposed to be in that role. And it's a really rubbish role. Actually, in the first one, Kelly McGillis' role was really cool. And she was a kind of like a badass woman. Jennifer Connolly, no. This is a woman who owns a bar, can't get over a broken heart and her hots for Tom. 
And Connolly looks like she's never done any of those things, even been in a bar, ever had a heartbroken or ever had the hots for Tom Cruise. But then the film shows you what the fighter pilots have got to do. There's nothing more complicated than the old Star Wars drop it into the Death Star little hole thing. And they practice it and they simulate it and then they do it. And it's all seat-clenchingly well done and well explained and well directed. How do we get this museum piece in the air, says Goose's kid, buckling up in a F-14. Well, they manage pretty well. I mean, that's a real in-microcosm of the film. How, they, how do we get this museum piece in the air? Well, they do. There's a lot of flashback and a lot of photoshopping. And I don't know, Cruz seems to have done something odd with time here. He defies time in both the present and the past. So that we don't keep thinking, wow, he was so young in that original. God, I was so young in 1986 when I first saw it. Or, well, well, he's got so old now and we've all got so old now. So he's managed to preserve his movie star sheen and charisma and earning power. And it remains exactly where it's always been. You know, hovering in this sort of undeposable position right at the top. You know, like he was never young and he will never grow old conjuring up some kind of anti-Dorian Gray CGI software sweet spot. And there's no enemy in this film. There's no Iraq, no Iran, no Russians, no Chinese, no North Koreans, no English baddies. There's just a faceless video game type othering of people who aren't American, who could be shot down and destroyed by America's finest and most cocksure recruits. Is this film about anything? It doesn't have the fetishization and machismo and homoerotic zing of the first one. Does it matter? No. Did I enjoy it until the G-force of a summer blockbuster with beers and rock chords stretched my mouth into a smile? Hell yeah. Top Gun is launching itself officially at Cannes. Uh, next week, May the 17th to the 28th. And I'll be there at the festival for you, as will Tom Cruise, who's giving... A masterclass, I assume, on grinning unbreakably and selfie-taking with fans. And being a movie star in the age of Instagram influencers, which is actually something I am very interested in, and I think that's fascinating. And it's key to the survival of cinema, this star power. You don't want to see Top Gun anywhere else than on the biggest screen you can find, for example. But do youngsters care about seeing Tom Cruise getting it on with Jennifer Connelly? Ew. I mean, it's like catching your grandparents at it, isn't it? Anyway... I will be there on the quasette, not with Tom Cruise and Jennifer Connelly in bed. I'll be watching films and I'll be becoming a movie producer. So I'll let you know how that goes with an update and some reviews and some buzz from my critical chums with what they've seen and what I've generally missed because I'll be in meetings and attending panels and stuff like that. So before I go to Cannes, let's all chill with some gorgeous film music from my guest, Alex Heffis. <laughs> Well, that is Fiona's theme from The Queen of Catway, which is a great little film by Mira Nair about a chess prodigy in the Ugandan capital Shantytown. And it was written by Alex Heffis, whose new solo piano album is Sudden Light. And it bursts with rearranged film tunes and it sounds fantastic. It's rich and complex, yet hummable and clear and simple. And I met up with Alex uh, down in the basement of Soho Screening Rooms last week and I asked him, of course, at the start, how the inspiration for Sudden Light shone on him. <laughs> 
You know, this record took a long time to happen. The beginning of it actually is slightly random, but I actually had an accident a few years ago and I broke my left hand really badly. You you owed some people some money. I know these musicians. It was an they offer broke. I couldn't refuse. Unfortunately, never refused that offer. So you know, I had a I had a metal pin, a couple of them in my finger, and I was in like a brace for ages. And so my my hand for about a year was out of action. And um, being a pianist, you know, um, the weird thing is, I sort of pushed that to the back of my mind because I was being a composer first of all I had to finish a movie I was doing I was like in a mad panic to finish this with one hand I was doing an action film it turns out you can write action music with one hand actually I don't know what that says about action film music but which one was it it was it's actually a really fun film a Catherine Hardwick's film Miss Bala which um it's a great film. It is a good film. I like it. Yeah, I like yeah. the, the original was the Mexican one. Yeah, it? yeah. And I love working with Catherine. She's she's great. I'm just starting a film with her now, actually. She's really, really fun to work with. But so you say to her, look what I can do with two hands. Yeah, if, yeah imagine. Just if you had two hands. You know, I, I, I sort of thought I was uh, a bit like my piano playing days were over, you know, in a, in a, in a sort of sense. Oh. So I pushed it to the back of my mind because I was trying not to be too worried about it. But... One day I just sat down at the piano and I started trying to pick out tunes that I'd written for film just, just for fun at the piano as a sort of a bit of an exercise and what could I do because the fingers just weren't moving. And I got into a bit of a habit of doing it and after a time I, it suddenly struck me. I was like, do you know what, I'm, I might have a record here because there's actually, you know, these tunes work really nicely on the piano and it was sort of fascinating to take stuff that might have been orchestral and you know quite big in essence and like boil it down to what could be really intimate and really mm. simple and beautiful and so it became a bit of a self-therapy exercise and, and I'm happy to say you know the left hand did come back after it took about two years actually wow. to come back yeah I remember Keith Jarrett when he had mm. Emmy the late Keith Jarrett of course but you know uh, you know, he thought his career was over, and then he came back with it's an even more beautiful album. I know, and I, you know, I've been a, f- a fan of his since I was really young, and it, it's absolutely true. It's incredible what what your you know your body can do. But of course, it all starts in the mind, really. I think what I was doing was protecting my hands so much I didn't want to play the piano because you sort of figure like if you've got an injury, you shouldn't use it. And what was happening is I was developing these pieces and just playing and relaxing, not worrying about. I think if I, if I was playing other people's music, mm-hmm. it would be different because you're sort of like in a different mode but the, here I was like totally relaxed I was just playing my own music and that's how I found that I actually got working again so was there a sort of oh you know let's look back at the, the scores that I've done and some of my almost making greatest hits album yeah I think there's an element of that and um I'd done a couple of years ago we did a live concert of Touching the Void Kevin McDonald's film at the Barbican where we you know showed the screen and we did it live and that sort of put me in the mindset of it was sort of interesting to uh, revisit work that you'd done quite a long time ago and almost look at it a bit more impartially like and that was one of your early hits your, was, one of your, it, both of yours first yeah it was deal. it was yeah I mean the first film I did with Kevin was One Day in September yeah. which he won the Oscar for it was literally his first film which is pretty good going really yeah and so it has been really interesting to look back over a body of work and think you know what could work and also people really connect with the piano I think it's because a lot of us either had piano lessons when we were young or you know I think there's something very deep in that is that where you started which I should probably confess at this point Alex this is maybe you know what they they call it fair disclosure is that you and I went to little school together (laughs) it's unbelievable but true I know I know you don't look a day over 11 (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember you sort of knocking out that many solo pianos by the way in the gym well you know I, I did start off on the piano, but what, when I look back now at my younger self, um, what I really loved doing was sitting and noodling and playing, making stuff up, actually. And that, I did that from day one. 
And but of course, I didn't think that that would, you know, people actually told me that was, you know, you shouldn't do that. You should actually practice and be proper, you know. <laughs> so, so luckily, you know, that that has turned out to be useful. Well, it's, it's very rich. I do. I do love your playing. And, you know, you've got a real rich thing. I wonder if there's, you know, there seems to be a, a move towards solo piano, even in the sort of music industry with mm. uh, Alexis French, mm. Ludovico Inaldi, for example. They are you know, not to sort of bandy these other people around, but mm. they, they, they've sort of paved the way for there's a, clearly a market for this sort of stuff. I think so, and yeah, I was. I was. I had lunch with Alexis recently, and um, we were talking about exactly this and what is it about the piano that connects mm. with people. And my theory is it goes back to childhood and people's memory of a sort of music that they might have heard when they were very young, and it just keys into something which is quite just sort of emotional for people. I think maybe I don't know. I think so. Or, or I, I sit there thinking, God, if only I practiced like my dad told me to, I could be doing this. <laughs> I know, and that's one of the other reasons why I thought of making piano record, because I have a lot of people writing to me about, about scores I've done, and, and but particularly piano scores, like Dear Frankie, which is another old one, which I remember um, I had a lot of letters about, and people were writing to me saying, oh, I'm trying to pick out the tune on the piano, and can you send me the piano music, can I buy the piano music? You know, It made me think you know, there's something about people being able to play the music themselves, which is actually really important. So we are publishing sheet music for this as well as a, like a sort of a nice thing that people can go and really immerse themselves in. Oh, how brilliant. So, I mean, take me through some of the, the, the... Some people will know there's one day in September there, the theme with the Oscar-winning scene, yes, the yeah, McDonald's yeah. Uh, documentary. You've got the theme from Mandela, which is from The Long Walk to Freedom. The Long Walk to Freedom, Idris yeah. and yes. Naomi Harris that you work with there. You've got yeah. a bit of Naomi Harris in here. Didn't you do the one with her in... Um, when she was a teacher in Africa for Justin oh, yes. Chadwick. Yes, the first grader. That's such such a lovely film. I love film. that film. Why do yeah. people love that film more? Do you know, I think... Well, I think at Cannes it was the year it came second to the King's Speech. And I think King's Speech just, you know, it hit a wave, you know. It sort of had the wind behind it. So I think that slightly nixed it. But it's interesting for such a small film, the first grader, that a lot of people that I know saw it and loved it and really wanted other people to see it, yeah. And then you, you something obviously you do very well is intuit those themes of Africa because you did Last King of Scotland mm. for Kevin MacDonald and also The Queen of Catway which mm. is rather beautiful for the brilliant Mira Nair. Yeah. so yeah, that's something that you, you do very well well thank you very much <laughs> do you know it's funny but I mean I think people thought I was some sort of ethnic music uh, or you know world music specialist mm. And when we did Last King of Scotland, Kevin got me to go out to Uganda because he really comes from documentary, that's his world. So he's, he's like, well, my composer should also, you know, immerse. immerse, which I couldn't be more grateful for. So we went out to Uganda, we recorded choirs in the middle of fields and in the back of cars and li- literally whatever we, we could get. And I, I guess that was an immersive crash course in that sort of thing. So I did learn to do it and afterwards people kept asking me to do it and I think they thought I knew all about it but you know just like anything in life you you know you learn as you go yeah and working with Mir on on that film and that's turned into a, a fun thing we did Suitable Boy uh, with um, with with her last year and I was working with Anushka Shankar who did all the sitar stuff and I've been really lucky to work you know in collaboration with lots of interesting people which has been really fun quick, I mean I'd, during lockdown our Suitable Boy came out it was, yeah. it was absolutely beautiful and played, played some of that on the show too oh great yeah it was like you know we had to do it all remotely and you know what you could do we had our amazing uh indian flute the bansuri player in mumbai he was doing everything remotely and they had the monsoon was so fierce and strong that we had to stop recording for three days because the rain was so noisy on mic we literally couldn't record anything but you know
know, we've all gone through these weird experiences in lockdown yeah. of trying to make it work. So, so tell us. Yeah. So I mentioned one day in September. You've mentioned touching the void. You've yes. got the theme to there. What? What? what some? Uh, some of these. This, that first one is actually from Dear Frankie, which is a film that had Emily Mortimer, Gerard Butler in it, and it's again one of those smaller films that um, I wanted to pick things that meant something to me. You know, some of them are a bit bigger, some are smaller. And that one, I remember people wrote to me a lot about, and I remember one letter where someone wrote to me about their. I think it was their dad who had dementia or onset dementia and so the only thing they could really do to get that he could do was play the piano mm. because everything else was sort of falling apart and they'd seen that film Dear Frankie and wanted to learn to play the music together on the piano as a, as a way of doing something together and you know that that sort of thing really you know it makes it, it made a difference to me because when you're a composer you're in your own dark room on your own a lot of the time you don't get to really connect with your audience until you start hearing back so I always remember that and what's uh, Sadie's theme that is from a show that I really enjoy called 112263 which is a Stephen King novel and it was adapted I don't know it was here on Sky over in the States it was on Hulu which is one of the streamers uh, it's got James Franco as the, the lead but it's a time travel so the book is phenomenal actually I like Stephen King but I'm not like a huge horror fan but but there's something about Stephen King that is so hooky. He comes up with a hook. And the hook in this is that there's a guy that discovers in a in a trailer van that if you go into the back of this trailer van, it goes back to the very same day every day in 1962. And he gets sent back to go and try and discover who shot JFK. And, of course, he goes through But he has to live a year in order. So every time you come back through the trailer, you have to go back and relive the year again. So eventually he lives a whole year there to try and track down this mystery. And, of course, he falls in love with Sadie, who's... You know this beautiful girl that comes along so it turns into a love story actually and that's Sadie's theme and um, it's something I just really liked that writes themes for characters you know there's always one that trails behind them like, like Linus and his, and his yeah exactly that's a great thing. that's a great Charlie Brown is like growing up that's a great one in fact my daughter was learned to play it on the piano crazy so I was listening to it I think oh I remember that <laughs> well you know I think themes go in and out of fashion apparently but that's what I'm told but I believe that an audience never comes out of a movie humming a drone you know if they if they not well, i've not got anything about, against drones there's a certain type of music like that can work great but you know when an audience connects with a film and they go and see you know star wars or et or whatever they come out singing the tune because it sort of sticks with them so that's always been my uh, my aspiration yeah How much, i mean you're obviously a musicologist and a music <laughs> fan but are you also a movie fan no I'm a movie fan I mean that's when I was a kid you know I, I did the piano but I wasn't a virtuoso I wasn't what I felt I was serious about when I was 12 was I used to get up don't tell my parents this I used to get up you know at 5 in the morning and I would whack on a video and I'd watch a film before going to school because I was so obsessed with, with movies so I um yeah, and those were the days, you know, where you'd buy a cinema ticket and they'd let you go back and watch the film yeah. t- twice or three times. You, li- you live quite near the... I remember you lived like, quite near the Granada or the ABC in Harrow. The, the Gra- yeah, I was in between both. And that Granada was an amazing cinema. Yeah. It was huge and it had those painted panel frescoes. 
And so we used to go and my mum would say, go, you know, take yourself to the cinema to amuse yourself the afternoon. We used to go and buy a pack of sweets and sit there for like four hours. You, you, you'd almost be behind it, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, no, no, we really did. So I spent a, a lot of time in, in, the, in oh, the cinema. Yeah, I've just put that two and two together. Yeah. Why is Alex Heffers so yeah, yeah. big in big in movies? Well, there you go. So, so, you know, a ruined childhood. I'll tell you, actually, that we had a lady who used to look after us in the house and she did some cleaning and stuff. And we discovered um, that she actually had a second job in the cinema. And so when, when it wasn't sort of a big deal, but she was like, okay, well, I've got this other job, but I'll tell you what, bring the kids down, I'll let them in for free. And she even gave us free sweets. And so we got to go to the theatre. Uh, that's probably why it went bankrupt, that poor cinema. But, but so we got free sweets and we got let into the cinema. So I was there all the time, I can tell what you. What did you see there? I saw Star Wars for the very first time there in 1977. And I remember coming running home back down the street and banging on the door and going straight to the piano and try to pick out that tune and I've, I've been trying ever since actually <laughs> chasing the tree <laughs> now I, I remember that feeling very clearly I saw um, Jedi in that cinema mm. and got my first snog Lisa Engel back row Clara Granada <laughs> And where is she now? Do you know what? I don't, if she's listening, I'm, I'm not really available. But yeah, he's I'm on happy. Instagram. Just let me say, <laughs> she was lovely. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's it's sort of a you hear people say this, but it does make such an impression on you when you're you're, yeah. at, you're at that young age. And I try and keep that feeling, you know, of the excitement. You're, you seem almost as romantic about it as I am I think every time the lights go down I'm going to see the best film ever yeah I know and half the time it's rubbish but you know you still come back for more because um, and you know and I love streaming services because it's convenient and there's so much stuff but you know we all say it you know the reason why we got into the movies is that collective experience and it sort of sounds maybe it's old fashioned I don't know but there is comedies are funnier with an audience and horror movies are scarier with an audience there's no question about it there's uh, I remember the first, like, talking about Touching the Void, that film I did with Kevin. And that was one of the very first documentaries that was really in the cinema, and it was sort of a huge hit at the time. I remember going past the Finchley, uh, the, the whatever the cinema is in, in East Finchley, and seeing a queue. The Phoenix. The Phoenix, yeah, wonderful cinema. There was a queue going round the corner. I thought, what's that? And it was for Touching the Void. It was amazing. The first time I went to see the film with an audience was the first time I'd seen a film that I'd done where I could see people actually crying in, in the cinema because they were so sort of moved and taken. And I remember that in that screening, it was the first film I'd seen where the whole audience sat through the end credits where the music was playing because no one could get out of their seat because they were sort of, you know, rooted to the spot with the emotion of the whole thing. And it made a big impression on me. Clearly, it, w- it was one of the first feature docs. It you know, was, and we it made we, the genre. We look back now, and it's sort of, that genre is very familiar to us because it sort of became like the template for how you do those mm. things. But it's easy to forget that before then. What else is in here? This, this one intrigues me: Penguin Raiders Return. Yes, I like. I that missed one. that film, Penguin Raiders. Yeah. Yeah. where have you been? Where have you? Yeah, where have you been? So it was. I did a Planet Earth film called Earth One Amazing Day, which is. Um, it was when Planet Earth Two came out, actually. So the BBC made a cinema version where they took. Um, it was sort of done at the same time so uh, a lot of the same thing but some fresh new stuff as well and the sync sequence with the penguins was just really fun I just thought it'd be fun to do it like a pirates type you know high seas you know sort of swashbuckling thing but with with penguins so it was a bit of a challenge doing it on the piano but I wanted to there's a lot of very gentle and very simple music on this record but I wanted a couple of tracks that just you know just stretched stretched me and the listener a bit and the finale for John who's John? 
Actually, John was and is uh, a good friend and a colleague of mine, John Ashton Thomas. He died very suddenly last year, um, well, well before his time. And you would you would know John actually because he orchestrated all of John Powell's films forever. So he he was behind um, How to Train Your Dragon and you know all of those incredible films that John Powell's done. And and John had worked with me as well um, for many years, and he orchestrated Mandela and lots of other films and. Uh, he died really suddenly, and when you know, when I got over the shock, I was in the studio recording "Sudden Light," this album we're talking about, and I had just made up the day he died. I'd made up a little tune, and I was in a break. I was sitting at the piano playing this tune, and the producer in the box just said, "What's what's that you're playing?" And I said, "You know, I just made up this thing." They said, "It's really beautiful. You should you should record it for the album." So it's there just to say thank thanks, John, for you know everything that you did. Roland Joffe on the show the other week mm. because he was talking about Ennio Morricone mm. in the big documentary about Ennio uh, and it oh, was yeah. slightly painful watching this because Ennio sort of denigrated his own art a bit <laughs> right. with 500 scores but yes. he really wanted to be a classical right. musician where uh, you seem to be uh, movies is what it was for you where am I on, on, the, on the Ennio spectrum <laughs> do you know I think there is I see that a lot and I think there's a temptation to denigrate our own art Mm. in the movies because we feel like we have to sort of compromise a lot but I I, I always feel like it's actually much harder to compromise and still be satisfied with what you've done and that's what I try and do I always try and feel like that I'm happy with what I don't want to just knock something out because someone tells me they want it done a different way I'll do it a different way but I've got to I've got to make it good and sneak the good stuff in a bit like putting vitamin pills in there you know in the so I'm really I'm happy and proud to be a film composer what I would say is that this is a different experience writing even though this record is based on film music it's it's sort of been re some of the ideas have been redeveloped and I've tried to sort of let it out in the wild and let it you know go its own way and that's been really nice and so that's a little taste of where where that could go and maybe I'll have a you know maybe I'll stretch my brain in that in that direction a bit more in the future who who's your film composing inspirations Mm. Well, of course, John Williams. I'm sit- we're here, sitting here. I'm right in front of Angela's Ashes poster, and that's a brilliant score. And you know, it, honestly, I, you know, I really wanted to be John Williams when I was growing up. And it took me a long time to realise it's an important life lesson that John Williams is already John Williams. Yeah. You know, and that situation's not vacant. It's not that job has already <laughs> taken. But you know, but uh, it's important to learn what to take from your mentors and then how to sort of take that into your own synthesize that into your own vocabulary so you know for sure um i grew up listening to that and you know the jerry goldsmiths and planet of the apes just scared the bejesus out of me when i was small and it's still it's one of my favorite you know score is just so it's just so so sort of stark and i don't know if you could get away with that in a film now it's just so sort of crazy but you know (laughs) if i could i often ask my guests who are directors or actors if they could Mm. go back to seeing a film being made 
you know, back anywhere in the world, you know, back in time, mm. if you could go to a, a score recording or mm. a score being composed, mm. where, where, which, which, which studio would you go to? Which... Well, interesting. Well, they always say never meet your heroes. Uh, although I've been lucky enough to meet John Williams, and he was delightful. So that wasn't. <laughs> I want to meet you. Yeah, I know. You know, film is it's so chaotic, and I think. The beauty of film is that when the lights go down and the audience watches it, a really good film flows as if it just was meant to be. And what the audience doesn't know is that the whole thing was a chaotic nightmare from beginning to end in a lot of times. So whether you'd want to go back and actually see that and take the magic out, I I don't know. You know, <laughs> it must have been a day when it all came together and it all flowed, and that was the one oh, take, no, and everyone said, "Brilliant, that's the one." There's no question. I mean, I always think of this story when I was quite young. We were working down at um, Anvil, which is down near Pinewood. It's now it was a sound studio. I don't know if it's still there, but at, at, back in the seventies, they were using it to record the LSO to do Star Wars and Superman. And some of those sessions must have been incredible because it wasn't really a sound stage. It was just like a big room, and they stuffed an orchestra <laughs> in it. And the engineer who was there dubbed being the film I was working on said oh yeah he'd been a junior on uh, the Star Wars the, the first uh, Superman Superman the, the original one and he said he remembered there was this awful moment when um, they John Williams came in the next day and um, the producers were in there they wanted to hear the main title and they were listening to it they're like it doesn't sound very good there's something wrong what's that that you know the trumpet tune da, 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 ba, da, da, da. they were like that's not very good what it sounded much better yesterday it turned out that someone had put the wrong tape on the thing and in those days it was all on tape so they'd sliced it off they'd chucked it in the bin <laughs> and he said everyone in a mad panic started going through all the bins to actually find the bit of tape and they found it he said we found it and we just sellotaped it back on and that's when, what, what went on on the films that's what I mean you know, sort of, there's a chaos in those situations <laughs> which is, is not present for the audience but it's sort of fun to know so to be there I'm going to take your answer is to be there on the day they found the, 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 that bit of tape I, in that the would bin, have been here. that would have been a memory I would I would have <laughs> cherished absolutely <laughs> Alex I'm so pleased you put it all on sudden light I'm really looking forward to sort of working to it and sort of getting the inspiration if you don't mind I shall use it as you can not do, background but inspiration no but I just wanted to make something that people could really enjoy either you're going to work to it or listen to it or whatever but you know just enjoy it um, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been lovely to see you again. Yeah, great. And yeah, I'll sure. see you in detention. <laughs> <laughs> and Sudden Light is on Silver Screen Records and on all your streaming platforms. Sumptuous stuff. What else can I leave you with before I hit the croisette? I've told you about The Quiet Girl from Ireland. Uh, the director was on the, the show last week. That's a lovely film. And Gaspar Noe's brilliant, intensely emotional film, Vortex. Those are out now. Uh, so a word for the series on Amazon Prime, somewhere like that, I think. Uh, and it's called Hacks. And I'm enjoying it very much. It's the half hour before we go to bed slot. A zingy little comedy about an out-of-work lesbian joke writer from L.A. who's been hired by an old-school Las Vegas diva comedian to write jokes, reluctantly, of course, and the two try and find some common comedic ground in the desert. This is fun and funny, and it's nicely played by everyone, smartly written and observed, and it bounces along. It's kind of bingeable. It's like, oh, go on, just one more. Not earth-shattering, but I'm in. It's called Hacks. You'll like it, and you'll say, thanks, Jason, for recommending that. That's just what I needed. But if you don't watch it, you'll be fine. But you'll probably be wasting time watching something similar, but not as good. So, Hacks, that's my 
watch it recommendation. Okay, thanks to Alex Heffers for the music and for the memories, and thanks to Kate Dawkins for putting it all together and tuning the piano. And thanks to you for listening. Next time I'll be talking to you from France, so until then, au revoir. Uh, And let's go out with some Italian jazz. Uh, It's from a new compilation album called Boom! Italian Jazz Soundtracks at Their Finest, taken from the 50s and the 60s. It's on the Cam Sugar label and features obscure B-movie tunes and movie composers. Really cool stuff. Big names like Ennio Morricone and Chet Baker feature. uh, And uh, there's lots of other sort of great composers on there, like Luca Bonfa. Um, But this is Milano Blues by Piero Umiliani, who also features a great composer of this sort of stuff. Uh, It's taken from a film uh, from 1964, an Anita Ekberg starrer called Bianco, Rosso, Giallo, Rosa, which is white, red, yellow, pink. I'm sure you've never seen it, but it sounds a little bit like this. See you soon. Bye-bye.